0: Well, good afternoon. It's good to see you here this afternoon as we worship our God together. I didn't mention this morning, but I would mention that. I mentioned it last week, and that is the budget or the financial statement of the church is on the back table. Uh, It's probably the last one before the new budget and and the final statement is given, but if you want to look at that, it's there. There's a copy for everybody. So. And if you have a question about that, uh, see see one of the deacons. Uh, I'm sure they'll be happy to answer any questions you have. So, All right. Well, now let's give ourselves to the worship of our God. Let's take the Trinity hymn book and turn to 579. 579, Be Still, My Soul, The Lord is on Thy Side. 579. <clears throat> Let's stand together as we sing.
1: Be still, my soul, the Lord is on thy side, bear patiently cross of grief or pain, leave to thy God to water and provide, in every change he faithful will remain. thy heavenly friend through thorny ways leads to a joyful end. Be still my soul thy God doth undertake to guide the As he has the past Thy hope, thy confidence Let nothing shake All now mysterious Shall be bright at last Be still, my soul the waves and still knows his voice who rule them while he dwelt below. Be still, my soul, when fairest friends depart. don't fullness, all he takes away, be still my soul, the hour is hastening on, shall gone, sorrow forgot, love's purest joy restored, be still my soul when change and tears are past. said we shall meet at last. Amen. Let's pray together.
0: Brother Ken Brown, would you ask God to meet with us? Amen. You can be seated.
2: 26 this week. Proverbs. <clears throat> We've noted as we went along how there are uh, topics that Solomon keeps revisiting uh, throughout. Uh, this book, and I'm of the opinion, not actually counting verses, but right now I'm thinking there's an overwhelming amount of Proverbs relating to the use of our tongue. But there's also uh, the work ethic, and there's a word that only occurs in the book of Proverbs. It's atzel in Hebrew. And it's the word sluggard or uh, slothful. And this chapter will be the last time we will see the mention of them, but it's pretty amazing. Uh, You look up that word in your handy-dandy Blue Letter Bible Concordance and uh, find that it's this is the tenth time that the subject has come up. There are actually 14 verses. contain that word, but this is the 10th time, the 10th chapter that we have come through so far that brings up the subject of sluggard. So 10 times makes it, it qualifies as a besetting sin, one of our besetting sins, doesn't it? Because why else uh, would there be um, so much repetition right up there with uh, uh, fornication, and backbiting is, is the sluggard. And we see that there's a, uh, in this chapter, we'll see especially that there's a, a, a relationship or maybe even a, a progression uh, of the fool because uh, just to bring out uh, the chapter divisions for this chapter would be uh, that I would put them in as 1 through 12, uh, is primarily focusing on the fool. He is uh, excoriated, so to speak, um, by Solomon. 13 uh, through 16 are our verses on the sluggard. But notice that in verse 12, there's one thing worse than a fool, and that is a man who is wise in his own eyes. He's taken folly. To the next level, and and we see the fool doing this in verse 16 because he becomes uh, he's wiser in his own eyes or in his own. For me, it's in his own conceits because I've read the Old King James for so many years. He's wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give a reason. So he's perfectly content that no one can answer him in his ways. He has developed, so to speak, three uh, precepts uh, that he lives by. In in this chapter, uh, we see them in verse 13, 14, and 15, um, back to back, one one with another. His first uh, precept, there's a lion in the street. His precept is, be safe. That's his precept. I don't want to take any chances. The second precept is <clears throat> look like you're busy, but don't do anything. Like the door on the hinge. That's how it works, right? There's movement. He's coming to church, but he's never growing in grace. He's going to work, but he never does anything. He's, he's, he's moving, but he's 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 not doing anything. So that's his second precept. Look busy while doing nothing. Some of us have worked with people like that. Some of us have been people like that. I don't want to be too easy on myself. And then verse 15, which Matthew Henry calls a a, a piece of elegant hyperbole. And this whole chapter is just full of, of similes and some beautiful. Hyperbole. Verse 15 is uh, 16 is one of them, or 15. He buries his hand in the dish, and he's too weary to bring it to his mouth again. The word "buries" is, is hidden. He hides uh, his hand. So his his third precept is: don't work too hard, and don't let people know that you really could do this. He 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 feigns uh, having a, a lame hand or whatever doesn't want to bring it to his mouth. He wants somebody to do it for him. He is so weary. The other uh, aspect that comes out about the sluggard is he's weary. He's always too tired. He just needs a little more sleep, and I'll be okay. All right? So, so with that set before us, let's read through this chapter. Like snow in summer and like rain in harvest, So glory is not fitting for a fool. Like a sparrow in its flitting, like a swallow in flying, so a curse without cause does not come. When bad things happen, there's a reason. A whip is for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the fool's back of fools. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you yourself also be like him. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Seemingly uh, contradictory um, verses, but it teaches us this, at least, and Matthew Henry brings this out, that we need to be wise in how to answer uh, the fool. And uh, sometimes it's best to keep silent, but sometimes he he, he mentions that, you know, by your silence you might be giving the fool the idea that he has a good argument and he's unanswerable and in that case you need uh, to answer him so um, the other funny thing though (laughs) that uh, about this is the verse we've already read he's wiser than seven men who can give a reason so be prepared to not do any good (laughs) Be prepared for him to have an answer for your, your good answer, and he will not be convinced. So anyone who can convince a sluggard out of his sluggishness has done a great feat. Um, Paul exhorts uh, Timothy to, in meekness, uh, instruct those who impose, oppose themselves, uh, and peradventure God will give them Repentance, so it must be by meekness and long suffering. So if you can do that, you've done something. Now I've lost my place. Somebody shout what verse we're on. Uh, six. He, he cuts off his own feet and drinks violence, who sends words by the hand of a fool. This, of course, was before texting, it's when message, messages were sent by messengers. Like the legs which hang limp on the lame, so is a proverb in the mouth of fools. Like one who binds a stone in a sling, so is he who gives glory to a fool. I didn't understand that one until a commentator pointed out what was going on here. He's tying the stone in the sling so that when you shoot it, it doesn't come out, <laughs> it does one of these. so okay, that makes sense. Verse 10 Like an archer who wounds everyone, so is he who hires a fool or who hires those who pass by. Like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. The sluggard says, There's a fierce lion in the road, a lion among the streets. Lions don't tend to live in cities, do they? On the streets, you're not likely to see a lion, but that's his excuse. As the door turns on the hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He is too weary to return it to his mouth. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can respond with a discreet answer. Like one who seizes a dog by the ears is he who passes by and becomes passionate about strife not belonging to him. Don't meddle. (laughs) Like a madman who shoots firebrands, arrows, and death, so is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, Am I not joking? There's a good piece of hyperbole. With no wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer, strife. Quiets down. Like charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. The words of a whisperer are like dainty morsels, and they go down into the innermost parts of the stomach. Like an earthen vessel overlaid with silver dross are fiery lips and an evil heart. He who hates disguises it with his lips. But he sets up deceit within himself. When he makes his voice gracious, do not believe him, for there are seven abominations in his heart. Though his hatred covers itself with guile, his evil will be revealed in the assembly. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and he who rolls a stone, it will turn back on him. A lying tongue hates those it crushes, And a flattering mouth works ruin.
0: Let's take our Trinity hymn books, turning to 599, The Sands of Time, 599. Let's stand together as we sing.
1: The sands of time are seeking The dawn of heaven breaks Summer morn I've sighed for The fair sweet dawn awakes Dark, dark hath been the midnight but day, spring is at hand.
0: First Thessalonians chapter five. 1 Thessalonians chapter five. Two weeks ago, we began looking together at First Thessalonians chapter four, in which Paul deals with. Am I saying Thessalonians? Sorry, right? I say that? okay. Somebody look Thought somebody's looking at me like. Where's he at? First Thessalonians five. 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul deals with the issue about the return of Christ, and specifically, he is addressing what happens to those who have already died before the return of Christ. And we looked at what the Apostle Paul had to say about those who have already died when Christ returned, and he gave them some information concerning that. He did not want them to be uninformed about those who had fallen asleep and so he sets before them some instruction concerning that reality. And then in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians he deals with the second issue that seemed to be very pressing at the time and that had to do with when Christ was coming again. The timing of the Lord's return. And perhaps they were interested in this because they wanted to be prepared for that great day. If they knew a timeline, it would be helpful in making sure that they were ready on time. A, a, a deadline is a good thing to have. If You can remember when some of us, when we were in school, it was nice to know a deadline so that I knew how much on what day I had to stay up all night to get it done, so we'd be ready on that day. A timeline's important, a time a deadline is good. It forces us to settle on our priorities and pursue what we need to get done uh, diligently. And so Paul addresses this whole area of when will Christ return? So follow as I read the first eight verses, and then I just want to set before you um, four things that he wants them to know concerning the timing of the Lord's coming. Now as to the time in Ephods, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And while they are saying, Peace and safety... Then sudden destruction come will come upon them, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you brethren are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief, for you are the sons of light and the sons of day. We are not of night or of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert. And sober. For those who sleep do not do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and the helmet, the hope of salvation. And we will stop reading there. So there are four things that the Apostle Paul sets before us concerning the timing of the coming of the Lord. Now, this, this has relevance for us because there are those who are date-setters. I can remember many years ago, in fact, I think it was, well, it was 1994, there was a certain man that wrote a huge book on the return of Christ. And when it would be, it was—I mean, it was yay thick. And there was an individual who, who was convinced that what was being said was true. And they challenged me, and they said, "Are you? Would you be willing to read this book?" I hadn't seen the book, but I said, "Okay, you bring me the book. I'm not going to buy the book, but you bring me the book, I'll read the book." And he brought me the book, and it, I mean, it was a good paperweight. Um, it was thick. And I'd given my word that I would read it. And so I read it. Now, if you were to ask me what I read, that would be a different story. I mean, he had numbers and figures and adding and subtracting and so forth and so on. But in reading the book, the author writes these words. Not surprisingly, when we have completed our study, we will know much about God's timetable for the history of the world, but we will not know the day or the hour of the actual end of the world when Christ is to come a second time. The author then goes on in this book to write the last day and the return of Christ would be if his calculations were correct, between September 15th and the 27th in 1994. He was off. His calculations must not have been correct. Well, what what does Paul tell us about this subject? And why does he deal with it? Well, for two reasons. First... There is the reality that calculating the time of Christ's return has been an ongoing problem in the history of Christ's eschatology. I mean, it's popping up all the time. I don't know, and maybe I'm out of the circles. I haven't heard lately of anybody giving a recent prediction, but but there was a time. These things were popping up all the time. I mean I do I, I do remember that time period between, September 15th and the 27th. And I remember, you know, well, though, but, all right. And so that's been an ongoing thing. And second, there's a reasonable forecast that date-setting fever will continue among professing Christians in years to come. It will continue to happen. People will continue to try to figure out when Christ is coming again. But quickly, there are are four things that Paul sets before us concerning this idea of when Christ would come again. The first thing is this, the the unnecessary exercise. The unnecessary exercise. Now, as to the time and ephod's brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. Concerning this, Paul goes on to say, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. He's saying it's absolutely an unnecessary exercise For me to write to you about the exact timing of the Lord. Paul tells us you have no need. There's nothing new to tell you. There's no new information about the time of the Lord's return that has already been given you. It was unnecessary to write about this because they already knew everything they needed to know On this subject Paul no doubt had already revealed to them that which he knew concerning when Christ himself would come again he also had taught them what Christ himself had taught that the precise timing of the Lord's return was only known by the father Matthew 24 Thirty-six, And while the event is certain, the precise day and hour is not known. Is not known. Brethren, it is an unnecessary exercise for me to write you about this topic of the precise time. No man knows the day. Or the hour. I find it amazing that the scripture says that. No man knows the day or the hour, and yet men diligently seek to figure that out. I mean, you talk about exercise in futility. That would be it. To spend hours upon hours, and paper upon paper, and ink upon ink, figuring out when Christ would return. All right? So it's an unnecessary exercise. Secondly, it's an unexpected event. It's an unexpected event. What he tells them is that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. This is the very metaphor that Christ himself used when speaking about his return in Matthew 24:42 to 44, he'll come like a thief in the night. It expresses the unexpectedness, the surprise, the alarm that would come. A thief does not forewarn its victims of his visit. A thief does not call you or text you, hey, I'm planning to be there tonight about 2 a.m. Please have the door unlocked. I'd hate to break your windows. No. He comes unexpectedly. He will, the thief does not forewarn, he catches them by surprise and many times unprepared. They didn't think about locking the doors. They're not married to Mrs. Walden, who every night opens the door, makes sure the garage door's shut, shuts the door, makes sure every door's locked. Well, I'm in bed. Uh she coming tonight? Oh, you know. She's very diligent. And we've never been, I should, maybe I shouldn't say this, we've never been broken into. All right? Because there are nights which she's not there. And I forget to lock the doors, so they didn't the think about locking the doors. Unprepared, unexpected. The, they're not married. The to Mrs. Walden, who every is, night is used opens here the door, when he makes says sure the garage door shut. He will come the door. Uh, a, for you make make sure yourselves know lock. full well, well that the day of the uh, Lord come will come oh, like a thief She's very in the diligent. Night. That terminology, we've Day never been, of the Lord, I say this. Is an expression we've never been broken into that's been used and rooted right. in the Old Testament. Because there are in passages that, like, like there, Amos 5.18, Isaiah 13, so, verse 6. They didn't this think is about locking the doors. Doors. Joel 1.15. The, the,
3: they're and not married the Day to of the Lord, who is, every night is, used is door commonly door applied
0: says, to God breaking into history.
3: To That's judge his no angels well and to save his people. That the day of the uh, Lord come will tonight. come. Oh, in like SP, the
0: New Testament, very the, the, the day of the Lord is intimately connected with the coming of the Lord, Lord the Jesus Christ. There are passages like, like there Amos 5 in 2 Thessalonians, Paul identifies the day of the Lord
3: when Mary says,
0: Whoever is your servant, is promised apply to, to God-breaking sure sure 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and to save a his that people. the day of the Lord will come in the New Testament in the night. The day of the Lord is intimately connected
3: with the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to identify that you the day of the Lord that Mary, the Lord, is the Spirit of God, breaking the the Lord, to judge his and to save the day of the Lord, is and Lord to provide, stage, see, see, up, will in new testament So the the day Lord, is coming the Lord, and together as the day, view, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, of the Lord, the day the Lord, the day of the Lord, day of the the of those who have gathered together Th- to oh, roll 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 of, of the Lord, the coming the Lord, of the back of will his the, May to the for Lord, Lord. And the the oh, Lord, of the 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 Lord, and Lord, 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 for those Lord, who have of the best is and of the Lord and so we have the name of it Those days before the flood,
0: they were eating and drinking and marrying Giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. They thought everything was fine, things are going well, nothing's going to happen, everything is peaceful, there's safety. Now, according to the Apostle Paul, when Christ comes again, humanity in general will think everything is well. Think everything's at peace giving none or little, if any, attention to a divine visitation. They will be bassing in inner calm and outward security. Things are good. Nothing can go wrong. I've got my car. I've got my house. I've got this. I've got that. Things are good. And so here we see there's an unwise expression. They are saying peace and safety. And then fourthly there'll be an unescapable end, an unescapable end. And then suddenly destruction will come upon them like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. Here we have a view where there's a sudden inescapable judgment that comes upon the people of that day. Destruction will be the end of all the unprepared people on that day. Destruction. The term that Paul uses is not suggesting is not suggesting annihilation. But it is a term that's rooted in the Old Testament image of God, God's historical judgment. And it points to the overwhelming men and women with suffering and loss. It is the judgment of God that comes upon them. And that judgment will come in such a way that they'll be calling for the rocks and the mountains to fall upon them. This is the end that Paul has in mind. The wrath of God upon the unconverted. The Apostle Paul even, even goes on to give us the image of birth pangs of a pregnant woman. The suffering that comes along with that. In Psalm 48, in verse six, this image is used to describe the pain and agony of an unpleasant experience. You might run into people every so often that mean that think about going to hell and what that would be like, and and they give you this idea. Well, you know, it's it's going to be one big party. I'm going to be there with all my other unconverted, unbelieving friends, and we'll be sitting around drinking and watching a good football game, or something else. But my friends, that is not the case. Pain and agony will be their experience as a mother in birth pangs, And it will come without warning. Without warning. The trump of God shall sound. And He will come. In all his glory. And there will be no escape for the unconverted. Just like a mother to be, the pains are going to be unavoidable. The judgment is inevitable. It will come. And that ought to stir us up to proclaim the gospel. Think of the loved ones who do not know the Lord, their only hope is found in Christ. And suddenly, judgment will fall upon them. And so we pray that God would take the Gospel and make it effective in their lives. So concerning the timing of the return of the Lord, Paul says, There's an unnecessary exercise. Don't try to figure it out. It'll be an unexpected event. He'll come like a thief in the night. There will be unwise expression, peace and safety. All is well. But there'll be an unescapable end when His judgment
3: comes upon them. None of us should be ignorant
0: of this or be caught off guard. It will happen. You have no need to try to figure out the time when Christ will return. It will happen suddenly and unexpectedly. But it will happen. One day, The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give forth its light and Christ shall come again. As certain as his promise of crushing the head of the servant is the certainty that he will again come. It may take thousands of years it may happen in the next week. But it will take place. The second word of application is this. The return of Christ is clear. On the occasion of His return, it will be accompanied by a great deal of terror for the ones without Christ. It will be a day of sheer Terror. This is to serve as a sober warning against all who do not know and love Christ. This day, whenever it comes, will be like no other day. There have been some pretty monumental events that has taken place in my lifetime. I remember where where I was and what I was doing when the announcement came over the PA that the President of the United States had been shot, John F. Kennedy. I remember what I was doing and where I was on 9-11 when airplanes hit the Twin Towers. Those were quite the events. And no, I'm not old enough to remember Pearl Harbor. (laughs) <laughs> but those are events that will stick in our minds forever. But when Christ comes again, it will be an event like no other. Look back to the days of Noah. We read, And all the flesh that moved on the earth perished, birds, animal, cattle, beasts, and every swarming thing that swarmed upon the earth and all mankind. It will be a day of great terror. And the third application is this. The return of Christ is clear. It is, the practical, it is our practical duty to be watchful. To be watchful until he comes watch says the lord for you do not know the day or the hour be ready for in such an hour that you think not the son of man will come the lord the lord knows our tendency to be careless and therefore he arms us with a heart searching exhortation to keep awake Notice the words that Paul uses here in verse 6. Let us not sleep as do others. We ought to live as, as good servants whose master is not home, but we ought to strive to be ready for His return. Let us be careful not to slough off any idea of the Lord's return. We should live every day that whenever He returns, we're ready to give Him a warm and loving reception. What would that be like? Well, blessed is the servant whom the Lord, when He comes, finds Him doing. What if I were to stand before the Lord this very night? Would it be a welcome and loving reception? Well done. Well done. John tells us in 1 John 3.3, And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as he is pure. I don't know what it will be like as far as I know what the Scripture says and what that experience will be like. You try to imagine He appears in the clouds and we're caught up together with Him. What would that be like to see our Savior face to face and be ushered into the new heaven and the new earth? And dwell with Him forever where there's no more pain, no more disappointment, no more fighting, no more squabbling. <laughs> what a day. And every day I ought to live being ready. There there are times in my life when I know that, and I, I don't know how, <laughs> I say I know, but how this all takes place, but... There have been times I think if Christ were to come, I'd almost be embarrassed. I don't think I will be, and I don't know how all that takes place, but you know. I don't want to be driving down the street yelling at somebody who cut me off. What are you doing? And all of a sudden I'm ushered into the presence of Christ. <laughs> what would that be like? I don't know. I know I'm forgiven. I know I will be. but I ought to live every day. And I ought to speak every day. And I ought to act every day as though, man, that the unexpected hours come. And now I'm with my Lord. And so, this is as far as I'm going to go with this. I just wanted to address those two issues. What happens to those who die before us when Christ comes again? And, and to say something about the timing of the Lord. Don't try to figure it out. My daughter before, I think I might have told you the story, my daughter before she was converted was always fearful about the return of the Lord. So she'd lay her head down on her pillow at night and say, Lord, I know You're coming tonight. Thinking she would uh, fox God. <laughs> Because I I, I told you you're coming tonight. You said no man knows the day or the hour, so you're not going to come tonight. (laughs) She thought that would prevent him from coming. That's not how we're to live. Thankfully, God saved her, and now she's waiting for him coming. (laughs) But that unexpected day will come. Will we be ready at that hour? Let's pray. Father, we give You thanks that as we anticipate Your coming, for many, the very thought of it is a terrifying thought. To experience the judgment of God on that day will be absolutely the worst anyone could be frightened or terrorized. But for us who are believers, it will be a day of great blessing and we thank You for that. And as we think of the new heaven and the new earth where the defilement of sin is done away with, the decay of the body is done away with, there will be back in paradise where we will fellowship with You and see our Savior face to face. We pray that each one of us might eagerly anticipate that. And for those who might be here who dread that very reality because they know You not, may You awaken them to their sin and draw them unto Yourself. And so we pray, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And we pray that by Your grace we would be diligent until that day comes when we will see You face to face. May those of us who have this hope purify ourselves even as You are pure. For we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Closing, let's sing 241 in the Trinity hymn book. 241, Day of Judgment, Day of Wonder, Hark the trumpet's awful sound. 241. Let's stand together as we sing.
1: Day of judgment, day of wonders, hark the trumpet's awful sound. Louder than a thousand thunders shakes the vast creation round. How the sun... Will the sinner's heart be found? See the judge our nature wearing, clothed in majesty divine. You who long for his appearing. Then shall say, this God is mine. To save your own me in that day as thine. At his call the dead awaken. Rise to life from earth and sea. All the powers of nature shaken By his looks prepared to flee Careless sinners What will then become of thee? But to those who have confessed Loved and served the Lord below. He will say, come near ye blessed, see the kingdom I bestow. You forever shall my love and glory know.